Hey, Felicia. How's it going? You know, it's still going. It's still going. <laughs> Similar to... It's such a loaded question. <laughs> I know. How it's life in the apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> it's May. I mean, it's the the gentlest apocalypse it's they really ease you into it so it's really nice and it's like as long as we don't have zombies we're still winning i know well it's like if you just don't look at the news you know (laughs) if you look out the window i think bill hicks was a comic from a while ago and he had this bit where he said you know you look at the news it's like war famine disease everything terrible and then you go open up your window and it's like birds tripping yeah exactly (laughs) there's such a disconnect for many of us i think yeah it's interesting times it is it is but we're in may of 2023 yep just like justin timberlake tells us and reminds us every year (laughs) it's gonna be may and here we are so we're here we are recording this in the very beginning of May, and this is going to come out, I think, like the second week of May. So we That's are correct. still a little bit in that time machine, but hopefully nothing wild happens between now and when this drops. I'm excited for May 4th because, you know, May the 4th be with you. This is one of my favorites. Yes. So I, I'm going to just put that out there in the world that by the time it's recorded, May the 4th will be the best day. So oh, it's 100% going to be the best day because, yeah. Well, because... I mean, Carrie Fisher is getting her Hollywood star or will have gotten it by the time. Which, and- you told me this and I honestly was shocked that she didn't already have a Hollywood star. I know. I don't understand why this is happening. I'm I glad do. it's happening, but why? It's because misogyny is my guess. I mean, sure. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> All right. For our poor listeners, we probably want to know what is going to be happening today on this lovely podcast episode which is super special. Felicia, will you tell us all about this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who are longtime listeners, which I know all of you are, um, (laughs) typically, you know, Rachel and I chat with a really fun guest, maybe sometimes two, but today it's a little bit of a special episode because we are not going to be the ones podcasting aside from this little chit chat right now, but you're going to be hearing from some team members. So SGO facilitators, Fatima Denke, Rachel Sadler, and Kaya Rivera are going to talk about how facilitation seeps into their everyday lives. And they're going to chat about the emotional labor that it takes to do this work, both during, before, and after work hours, which, you know, it is a lot. So they're going to talk about all of that, plus some strategies on how you can turn off facilitator mode. So for anyone who's out there who's in this kind of role or in a similar job, how you can continue to do this important work without burning out. So there's going to be a lot in that conversation. I'm excited about it. Welcome, everyone, to the She Geeks Out podcast. We have a special treat for you because the facilitators have taken over the podcast, and we are really excited to talk to you today about how facilitation kind of seeps into our personal lives. So let's start with introducing ourselves. Like, who are these people talking to us right now? My name is Rachel Sadler, she, her. I'm one of the DEI facilitators here, and I'm here with two of my favorite people in the whole world, my colleagues, Fatima Denke and Kai Rivera. And I'll let you all introduce yourselves. Go ahead and start Fatima. Awesome. I'm excited. Literally, this was when Rachel said, we're taking over. I was going to be like, whoop, whoop. <laughs> like, you never know when to jump in when the recording on Zoom thing happens. But that's my whoop, whoop that I was going to say like a couple <laughs> seconds ago. As Rachel said, I'm Fatima. I facilitate here at SGO and I'm excited to be here today. Kaya. Hi, everyone. My name is Kaya Rivera. I use she, her pronouns. I'm also a DEI facilitator with SGO and just excited to talk about what it's like to facilitate when you're offline at work and things of that nature. Yeah, because it happens naturally, right? We do this work up to eight hours, maybe more a day. And sometimes it's hard to like turn that off. So let's rewind a little bit. What is facilitation in the first place. And I think Fatima might be a good person to tell y'all what that is. And I was like, pick me, pick me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So honestly, I wasn't going to put in a shameless plug, but now that I'm about to say what I'm about to say, it kind of is a shameless plug. We have this pretty awesome program called Leading DEI Conversations. And we often define facilitation in like the first session because facilitation is a skill. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. We think of it as like a process where we're guiding or directing a group of individuals who are trying to probably work towards a common goal or maybe an objective. And sometimes it can be difficult when you facilitate because you might have your own personal thoughts, your own personal feels. But oftentimes when we facilitate, especially as DEI facilitators, our goal is to sort of be able to create a space, hold a space so that multiple people are getting to a certain space, whatever Mm -hmm. that space is, whether it's like, hey, we want to learn more about bias. Our goal is to be in that space and support their learning, their questions, their knowledge, their uncertainties and whatnot. So that's sort of like high level, but I'm curious to know how you all think about facilitation as facilitators. I love the idea of it being, taking people on a learning journey and just helping them get there. I think a lot of people think of facilitation as teaching and I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think we're giving them the content and taking them through that content to hopefully get them to that end goal. Like you talked about learning more about bias, learning more about allyship, action planning. And that's sort of how I see it. And that's what I tell clients when we're in a workshop that like, I'm the person speaking, but I'm even though I'm deemed the quote unquote expert, I don't feel like an expert because I'm also Mm. learning alongside you. And that community learning piece, I think is really important, but you do need someone to lead you through that. And that's what I see as facilitation. Yeah, you two summed it up perfectly. And just thinking about how it's not rare, but you're not often interjecting your own thoughts or beliefs. You know, sometimes you might add them in there, but for the most part, you are on the outside of the conversation, making sure that we're staying on track and asking open-ended questions, things of that nature. And so unless somebody specifically asks, what do you as an individual think? Oftentimes we're very focused on the group and making sure that they are having an opportunity to parse through some of these really difficult topics that we handle in some of our workshops, which leads me to thinking about like, the emotional capacity of that because we are facilitating difficult conversations and we are also impacted by them. All of us here are part of multiple marginalized populations. And so there are things that come up that impact us in various ways. And I'm interested in what you all have to think about the emotional component. Mm, I got thoughts and feels. I'm also looking at Kaya like, "Hmm, how how many thoughts and feels do you have? (laughs) I have a lot. I think as we do this work and as the world around us, one feels on fire and like the political landscape is evolving in a way that is attacking our work, it becomes even more emotional labor. And when folks feel as though they need to share every thought that's going into their brains during a facilitation, it can be really weighing on those identities that Rachel was talking about. Like I think about how I show up in a space as a queer Latinx person. And that is hard some days when we're talking about racism or we're talking about unconscious bias. And I hear something that like targets my identities and I'm like, Ooh, how am I being perceived in this room? And then there's also like the, being palatable for folks too. Like what part of me is having people put their guard up too. So how am I both taking care of myself? And I know Fatima will go into embodiment and more, but like, what am I feeling in my core? Am I getting angry? Am I getting nervous? Am I nervous? Cause I'm not being perceived in the ways that I think I should be being perceived or Am I also knowing as a facilitator you have to hold space for everyone and be that sort of protector of the space? Like, what does that look like when you're the one being harmed too? So how do you set your feelings aside, say the things you need to, to come back to those community agreements or put a participation back on the right path if they're swayed off a little bit to be like, hey, no, we're actually talking about this topic or I hear you and I see you and yet we have to get back like the yes and sort of moments but you also feel that harm and that shame that comes with it too. Mm. So real. And also I was wondering which one of us were going to say both and first. And and y'all, those of us who facilitate know, like there's a Twitter page called, I don't think I can say the word, but it's (laughs) S-H-I-T. Ish. Ish, right, ish. Oh, that's the, yes, yes, ish. That facilitator say, I think that's the handle, right? So good, hilarious. Check it out if you haven't. 
But I wanted to add on to what Kaya said because being a facilitator requires you to be able to be aware of yourself first. Like it's actually harder to facilitate a group in a process on a certain space if you're not self-aware around what are the things that trigger you or don't trigger you. And sometimes you think you know, and then somebody says something and you're like, oh, I thought I took care of that already five years ago oh. in therapy. Here we go. Back. <laughs> right and back again. Now it's time for everyone to go in a breakout room. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> because, you know, I got to catch my breath. And so that emotional labor is real because just because you have the skills, just because you've been doing the work for years, just because you've probably done your own healing and all those things, doesn't mean that you're not going to come back to a space where it can be hard for you to talk about a certain topic. Because the truth is when you're facilitating, you don't always know who's in the room, whether that's in person or virtually. So sometimes some of our workshops, you know, might go pretty smooth. Everyone's in the same agreement or on the same page and more of your facilitation is around just guiding the curiosities but other times you might get resistance you might get some challenges and if you don't have it often when it does happen you're like oh let me pull out these other skills and so the emotional labor also lies within like how we feel within our bodies based off of whatever it is that's happening in the room and then in addition how do we come off of that so a lot of times we talk about how we feel after a workshop or after a training and like in the moment, the adrenaline might be pumping and it's like, okay, I know I'm here to do this job, but then because you have to hold that space, you're not always going to be able to support yourself because you're trying to help clients or employees have a conversation. That's what Mm -hmm. folks are paying you for. And so sometimes I find myself spending like anywhere minimum from 30 minutes to an hour to two hours or like, hey, I'm taking the rest of the day off depending on what's showing up. And so that emotional labor requires me to also be very aware of like, what are the things that I need before, during and after so that I'm able to hold the space, but I'm also able to hold space for myself during those moments as well. I want Kaya to talk about the, she came up with this term called potato after the facilitation. Please tell the people about that real quick. (laughs) Potatoing. I was just thinking about me and my therapist talk about that a lot. That is a form of self-care I've put in first specifically for after facilitations. It's that sort of 30 minutes to maybe two hours, maybe a full day after a facilitation where I potato on the couch. I just sit on the couch Maybe it's mindlessly scrolling on TikTok for some serotonin. Maybe it's doing content work, like behind the scenes focus work if things need to get done. But it is a way for me to ground myself back in those emotions. Maybe journal about the things that I was like, oh, I thought I worked through that thing of five years ago in therapy that I now have to bring up with my therapist, right? Or what are some of the ways I could have reacted to that statement better, right? Over the past few months, one workshop in particular, I feel like I've been trying to do that with of like, someone says something, how can I react better next time? Or how can I present this better, facilitate this better to the group? So people don't get resistant or have that defensive up. Because I see myself even being like, oop, this isn't going to land the way I want to, but I need to get through the content. How am I getting through the content? So that's basically what potatoing is for me is being on the couch, almost like being in the ground, like an actual potato, (laughs) but no, (laughs) being on the couch, one, grounding myself. And then two, really thinking back to the work of like, what can I do better for my participants? But also recognizing that emotional labor that we are all experiencing that it is very tiring, especially after an in-person workshop. I had forgotten that. And then going back into in-person stuff, like my whole day is sort of like, I'm a zombie. I'm like, oh, I talk to a lot more people than I'm used to in my daily life. And here I am, I'm on, I'm walking around a room, talking, feeling very different feelings than you do on Zoom. So potatoing happens very hard on those mm-hmm. days. Yeah, I can definitely identify with that. You know, I was a teacher for like 12 years, right? And so you have back-to-back classes. And when you're in front of tiny humans, you never know what they're bringing. Everybody brings a lot with them, right? And so at the end of a day, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to have pizza and wine and watch the most mindless things because so much of your attention, your emotional expenditure, intellectual, you've given that up during the day. And then 
when we're going into the virtual spaces, that still exists, right? And if something is potentially triggering for you, if there are things that come up and how, again, you are taking care of yourself in the moment, but also other folks in the room, if there are people that are saying something that maybe doesn't come off right, and then the other people that may have reactions to that in addition to your own, and then being able to like notice and name that. And if we need to take a collective break, that's fine to step away. In particular, recently, I was in a workshop and the topic came up about Ralph Yarl, right? And how when you talk about children and babies, I get very passionate about that because I've worked with them for so long. And sometimes I can get on a bit of a soapbox because we are talking about these oppressive systems and look at the real life impacts of that. And the people in our communities that look like that, our family members, our friends, our colleagues. And I think it's important to name things and make it real for people, but also understanding that maybe it took five minutes, maybe get some water. Let's stretch. Let's, I need to move a little bit. I can feel it like my face gets really hot and my chest gets a little itchy. So I have to stand up and get that out before we start again. And as a facilitator, knowing how to do that, when to do that, and all of the management that that takes can be a lot. Yeah. When you were talking about like teaching and facilitation, and I know earlier Kaya was like, you know, there's a difference. I'm curious, Rachel, like I remember being in school and I remember, I don't remember my teachers taking a break, especially elementary, middle school. Like they just had classes back to back. Mm -hmm. And I think about like how, when, where we work, like sometimes there is an opportunity to take a break. And I'm curious, was it even normalized in the teaching space to be like, oh, if something is too much, take a break or whatever the case may be? No. Usually you have teachers have classes back to back and students even because you're having to get through so much content and curriculum for state mandates. Breaks aren't often encouraged depending on the length of the class. Most classes are either 50 minutes to 90. I don't always follow rules. So (laughs) even if it's a 50 minute class, if we're having hefty conversations, if something has been triggering to a student, it's just a lot of content, right? let's take a brain break. Let's chill out. Let's move. Let's listen to some music. Let's have a snack because we're humans, right? And you need, there's all these physiological and psychological needs that have to be met. Mm -hmm. And if you overload people, no matter what age, with too much too soon and do not allow for that processing, whether you're teaching somebody or facilitating conversations, there has to be a place where the body can rest for a moment. Because otherwise, Cognitive dissonance comes in, resistance comes in, and people can shut down. And that's the opposite of, I think, what we want. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Oh, I know your your little ones probably miss you, but it's oh. like also it's such like powerful, like a powerful way to think about even like when I've seen you in action or the, a lot of the engagement work that you're doing at SGO to like support adults as well, sit in front of the screen or however they're witnessing the the workshop and be like, okay, let's take a break. And I feel like Mm -hmm. some of what you shared that you've been using in the classroom, I often see it as well in like your practice and some of the work that you're doing in the facilitation space. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. What works for people works for people, no matter what age, right? So I think all of our collective attention spans have suffered significantly over the years. So as a whole, no matter what age you are, I feel like all of us have very short attention spans. So that, and we all just need to prioritize and normalize human experiences and breaks and allowing people to be human in all spaces and honoring that. And if that means that we have to readjust Okay, that's part of the the, well, the facilitation game, I guess, is being able to adjust <laughs> on the fly and not get stressed out by that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond both and, we have yes, and. <laughs> and I had to use that statement again. So how does this bleed over to our personal lives? So I'm at the gym, lifting things up, putting things down. And, you know, I have a little gym crush, so we try to find ways to interact. And it's usually because we can't do this in normal ways, finding something to argue about. So this individual wanted to argue with me or have a discussion about whether or not anger is a negative emotion. And my thought was, well, yes, because your body responds negatively to the emotion of anger. 
And his argument was, well, it can be processed positively. Well, yes, and yes, <laughs> you can have a negative emotion that can be processed into something positive if you are taught to do that. And so I found myself saying that a lot or two opposing things can be true at the same time. And so as we're having this discussion, of course, more people are coming in because we have a very small gym and it's not a lot of space and we're talking loudly. So people are coming in and I'm noticing people want to participate. And so now I am facilitating a conversation. Hey, such and such looks like she wants to say something. What is it that you have to say? <laughs> oh, well, sir, what did you, can you repeat that? Tell me more about that. So now I'm not even conversing anymore. I am facilitating folk in the gym who really should be doing these bicep curls. But now I'm going to have a philosophical argument about whether or not <laughs> anger is a negative emotion. <laughs> yeah. Right when you got into the moment of, I noticed other people, I was like, here comes the facilitator hat. Like, what? it just switched gears from like, here I am oh, having I a conversation. And then somebody, <laughs> now you're like, this person hasn't said much yet. Carl, was there anything else you wanted to add? <laughs> to what was just that? Yo, that's so real. <sighs> I have some thoughts around anger, but in true facilitation mode, Kai, do you have anything else to add? <laughs> What are your immediate reactions to Rachel's story? <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I have been there before too. Like in friend conversations, if we're on a heated topic, my friends and I like to play this game called hot topics. Like what's your hot take on something? And it could be anything. Mm. So sometimes it is philosophical conversations like is anger a negative emotion? And I feel myself being like, oh no, so-and-so you're talking over this person, like let them have their moment or we haven't heard from this person in a moment. Like, and it doesn't bother me all the time, but I think when we talk back to that piece of embodiment and like triggers and activators, when it's about something that's really rooted in our work, that's when I can feel myself getting really anxious or tired or angry even, right? Like, why am I continuing to have to do this, right? And I'm not getting paid. <laughs> So like, what does that also look like? And why isn't anyone else in my immediate friend group or family group taking on this role? And what does that look like in practice too? Is it like office housework where we're like, all right, Rachel and Fatima, we're rotating who's taking notes. Is it we rotate who facilitates <laughs> the hot topics, hot takes conversation? I don't know. It's really hard. Or when something big happens in the news and I have to talk to friends who don't have similar identities to me about things. I'm the one who's navigating and facilitating those conversations, which is a whole other topic for a different day, but is also really difficult to do when you're like, I do this for a very similar audience nine to five. Now, why am I being asked to do this seven to 10? <laughs> mm, that's real. Yeah. Everything in me is like excited and I don't mean that in like happiness way, just there's so many thoughts that are running through me because when I think about what you just said, Kaya, it really just makes me think about how often I've held space and it connects to anger too, or the lack of expressing anger, because there's something for me that I've noticed where I'm like, this idea of being a bigger person, I picked it up as a child, right? I was like, no one else is doing it. So I have to do it and I have to hold the space. And it, it turned into like low key, maybe even mid high key perfectionism. And over time, it's adaptive because I've learned as a child, I learned how to navigate my personal and familial interactions. But then you get into the world and it's not sustainable because there are a lot of things that I'd be wanting to say and do. And I'm like, wow. I'm suppressing so much, but this feeling of suppression feels very familiar. It feels very familiar from childhood. And a lot of it is suppressing anger. So what you said earlier, Rachel, made me think of like some of the somatics work that I've gotten into around like, okay, I know there's something there, but I don't know what it is. And the beauty of having someone else facilitate my stuff for me is great because I can just really say and question and be all of who I am without necessarily being judged or being asked to stop. And I know that's why people love facilitators. That's why people want us to facilitate our family meetings or our friend conversations, because in many ways we're allowing people to be seen or feel valued. And it's a beautiful thing. But like, if it doesn't feel reciprocal in relationships, it can be hard because 
even though you're a facilitator, you're also a human. So you too want to be seen and heard. And so the piece around anger that you mentioned is interesting because I think when I grew up, especially growing up in my particular home, because not all West Africans and Muslims be suppressing anger. Let me just be clear. <laughs> However, or and, <laughs> right, right, and and, there we go, some facilitation <laughs> words. I've noticed we've used our culture and religion as a way to sort of control these emotions that are very normal and primal in terms of how do you react if something doesn't feel good to you. And the way we might define anger in my community, when I respond in that way in the U.S. or in like Western context, it's not a big deal. People are like, no, yeah, it's valid. You're supposed to feel this way. If Mm -hmm. and when I respond or do the same thing within my house or within like my family environment, People get a little flustered. They're like, Fatima, calm down. Everything <laughs> is in God's hands. Like, you know, what I mean, there's this like very quick reaction to stop the anger because people do think that anger is always conflict ridden or destructive. But I've learned over the past year and a half is like, how do I hold space for this anger, let it rise, but then use it as a powerful force for change versus letting it sit in as well. And then having someone facilitate that for me because I don't want to be my own facilitator. Yeah, that was my follow-up question going to be is like, Fatima, how do you do that if you are in the facilitator role though? How do I do what? How do I help people process their anger? Or process your own anger. Oh, if I'm angry. In the moment, if you are facilitating, like family, even in workshops, like how... How do you wrestle with that? Or is it something you're like, okay, I feel it. Now I'm going to potato or talk to my therapist about it next week. Yes. So workshops is very rarely now, now that I get angry. When I first started facilitating, I entered facilitation with a very deep passion because I entered facilitation through like a racial justice lens. I was like, oh, heck no. Like I'm going in this space, like we're going in. But I also think because of my cultural indoctrination, I've never fully, fully, most people haven't seen me angry, you know, and also being a black woman and a darker skinned woman, like I'm very expressive. If folks can see me right now, I'm moving my hands as if I'm (laughs) throwing things around. But I think my anger, I've learned how to channel it in workshops for like passionate, like very, very passionate conversations. And if I feel a rumbling inside of me, then taking a moment to pause and saying it and, and being like, you know, this is a hard conversation and even it's even hard for me, right? And so maybe that might be like, let's take a break. Or if there's someone who said something, my brain automatically goes to like, this isn't personal. And I mm-hmm. think that's why I can have conversations about isms because you don't know me, I don't know you. You know, you will be saying whatever you want to say, it's not going to impact me. Now it's more challenging though, if I'm having a conversation with family or friends, because it feels more personal because I know these people, like you've seen me in my diapers all the way up to as an adult, or you've known me for 10 years. And it's like, because of that connection and timeline, those triggers are very much hard. So what I've noticed is like, if I'm in the house and I having a conversation with my mom and like, at this point, I feel like everyone knows about my mom. Cause like, if I'm doing anything, I mention her, but That relationship has been a very deep relationship for healing for myself. And with her, I share with her, I'm like, hey, this is really frustrating right now. I'm going to step away and we can talk about it later. There are other times where I just literally take note of my breath and allow that to be my focus. If I feel like I'm about to rage off on her, recognizing that it's not going to be beneficial for both of us. And then there are other times where I got to get a little bit stern, depending on the conversation where I'm like, this isn't okay. Give my feedback or whatever the case may be. So playing with all of those, it really depends on like the specific situation. But now I'm curious, what do y'all do? Like, how do y'all like, what does it look like for you to be in a position where it's very hard and you want to facilitate, but it feels so personal? Like, what what are the things that y'all do when it's like in a personal space outside of work? For me, for like family, there's this word that I love called boundaries that I have had to establish. And sometimes those boundaries are, these are not conversations that I will engage in because I end up doing all of the work. I end up being the one that's suppressing feelings and redirecting all these things. And it 
I don't participate in the conversation meaningfully. And I end up leaving with all of this unsaid stuff and emotions in my belly, right? And it alters the way I view that relationship. And so because these are people that are really close to me, it's tricky because you want to have tough conversations with folks that you care about. But also I recognize myself going back into a facilitation mode, maybe as a defense mechanism. I should parse that out with my therapist, but maybe it's avoidance. I don't know. But it gets very, when we're talking about people that are closer to me, if it's just like friends and acquaintances, then I'm sometimes able to push past that a little bit and say, you know, this is how I feel about it and so forth. But for me in particular, it's very tricky when we're talking about like family and people that are that close to me. I have to be like, this is a firm boundary. We cannot have this discussion. Or if we do, these are the parameters under which I'm willing to have it with you. Yeah, I do very similarly as Rachel of like a boundary or I'm able to name my feelings depending on who it's with. I'm like, I, this is what's coming up for me. Do we want to talk through it? Do we want me to just name it? And it's in the air and we can continue the dialogue the way that we have been. But I also find myself having a harder, it's interesting to see yourself as a facilitator in a workshop where I feel like people don't really argue. Whereas in private life, I feel like everyone would just be wild and out and wanting to argue. (laughs) So like, that's the part I haven't really worked well with because I, I keep, I think my brain keeps going like, Oh, this is like a workshop. They'll stop at some point, but I'm like, they're not in their workplace. They're hanging out with their family. You're their friend. They're just going to keep going and going and going and going. So if that's the case, I try to like disengage and I'm like, I'm, I'm good, but it's definitely hard. I think it's also hard. We talked about this before we started recording this podcast around like, we have the language and the tools for these things. And there are people in my life who don't, and I'm not saying like I'm better than them by any means, but I can lean on those tools and those skills and those words and they can't. And I think that that's what sometimes I rub up against of like, I know how to name feelings in a way that supports myself and the person I'm talking to, right? And in a way that isn't putting down on the other person. And yet the person I'm talking to doesn't have that. So then it's like a blame game or it becomes something that it wasn't before. And that is what I'm finding difficulty in right now when it comes to family, when it comes to friends of like, I want to be able to express emotions about a thing that's happening in our dynamics but I know I'm the one who's going to have to facilitate them. And I have these tips and tricks and tools on how to do that. And yet I'm going to also have to hold this other person because they're not going to be able to hold me. So what, what do I do then is sort of my question to us and myself. I mean, you just named a lot of work that the people in your orbit are getting for the low, low price of free 99. That is a lot of education training that you've had and then working in that moment. Whereas folks usually can just have a disagreement or an argument and it is what it is. But now you are working to manage this conversation, this person, whatever have you. And it's like, do we ever get to turn that off? I'm sure there's plenty of folks who teach, facilitate, coach that know how to turn that off very easily. I am not one of those people. So I'm working on, all right, like what capacity am I showing up in? Is this serving? I know I'm serving this person. Am I serving myself? And if not, giving myself permission to disengage if that's the case, or perhaps we need to involve a third party, like a therapist and use your copay, if that's something that you can do, or maybe even, it might be wild to say, if you have another friend that's skilled, Can we all have this conversation together so that I can say what I need to say and somebody else can hold the space? Because I'd be tired for real, just trying to have regular conversations with the folks in my life. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, this is such a great conversation because it's it's making me think like when you said just now, Kai, when you said like you have to make the decision about if the conversation is going to happen because you yourself, you have the tools and the strategies and you have had enough conversations with that person or a group of people in your personal life where you could probably guess how it's going to go. And so you have to decide because the question becomes, who's going to hold me? And do I have the capacity to do so? And I appreciate what you said, Rachel, around like, getting a third party or somebody else that could be a bit neutral because sometimes that does help and it allows 
you to just be you and the other person to be you. Then I started thinking about like some of my family interactions I've had and we have family meetings, you know, there's pros and cons to the collectivist culture. Okay. So <laughs> yes. Yay. I'm so great. I'm so grateful <laughs> we have uh, family meetings, but like the way the family meetings are run is like, so we go in this order of, we open it up with a prayer. That's cool with me, but we go in the order of like, usually oldest to youngest slash men first, women last. I'm usually the last person to speak, which I'm like, first of all, everybody that just says something I don't don't agree with, (laughs) or I might like sometimes agree with, but I'm also like, I feel like my mom has a lot of wisdom, but because of how the culture or the way they've interpreted the culture and religion, because I've seen other people within our same culture and religion that don't do the same things, but the way they've interpreted it, like my mom will have like a lot of wisdom about something, but she will defer to the elder men Mm -hmm. in my family because she thinks that's how it should be done. And there was a time where I was like, okay, this is interesting. I feel like we should try out something different. It only happened once. It didn't happen again. But I'm just saying, <laughs> like, okay, let me let me use my tools and strategies. Maybe it'll work. And I was like, hey, before the meeting, can we have an agenda? First of all. Not an agenda for the family <laughs> meeting, Fatima. Yo, the family meetings be three hours. There's no country. <laughs> like, we're going from left to right, up and down. And, and then there's no plan. So, like, it's very stressful because after the meeting, everybody goes on WhatsApp. And if you are an immigrant or child of immigrant, y'all know that's where we collaborate. It's like <laughs> everybody goes on WhatsApp. It's like, what are we supposed to do again? And it's like, okay. So how do I hold space for um, the way we move as a culture and also try to put some tools in place so that we're not tired or we're not spending a whole day processing things that would be easier. But I try to do it in a way where I was like, just put it in WhatsApp and I'll put something together. Then it was like, and I would love for us before we start the meeting and jump into business. I want to know how y'all feeling. How y'all doing? I'm doing this embodiment stuff. Not, not an icebreaker. Yeah, I know. I, I did. I tried it. I know. Right. And I, yo, I remember my family was answering, but like, I was like, what kind of answers are these? Like, my brother was like, oh, I just, you know, I thank God for everything. Things are okay. Or my other brother was like, I'm just glad we're having the meeting. And then somebody else said, okay, let's start the meeting. Like, you know, like different, (laughs) different ways of operating. But what it made me realize is like one of the things that Rachel has done or one of the programs you've worked on with Breaking Barriers has been great. Like the word boundaries, everyone is saying it, they're putting it out there. I've learned that that word does just not translate over to immigrant folks. Like Mm. they don't get it unless if they probably were, they've traveled and they've gone to different places. But the word boundaries sounds like a wall to a lot of immigrant folks because they feel like there's a disconnect happening when you say, hey, I need my time and space. It's like your time. It's our time. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I'm your, you know? And so a lot of my work these past couple of years has been like giving people the language they need to love on me and to hold space for me. And I haven't done a lot of that. So there's my work. Cause I'm like, I have all the tools and strategies. I'm like, but girl, put all that to the side. How do you want to be heard and loved? And that has made a change in terms of like how my folks communicate with me. And then also giving language to my family, being like, oh, mom, remember when your dad was like, marry my father and you didn't want to? And you remember how you felt? So yeah, me trying to move out, (laughs) you know what I mean? And making that connection for her because I do care about our relationship. And if I say like, I don't want to have this conversation with you, there's the relationship begins to change. And I, I do have a craving of understanding. I recognize that about myself. Mm-hmm. Now, if I've tried my best and I've exhausted all of my means, then I'm like, okay, I've done, but I will, you know, find the things. And I, that has been a bit helpful, but like acceptance is like the biggest piece, like mm-hmm. just accepting that some folks ain't going to change mm-hmm. and I don't got to facilitate everything. Mm, hate to break it to you, friend, but the humanizing that you were doing with your mom is a facilitation strategy. You see, how we just it just comes in there, right? Like how see how that you did this. Now put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's also a facilitation. I mean, That's it's true. It's, it's real. Yeah. It's a real thing, though, where you're having people see or feel their feelings, and then see you can understand then how somebody else might feel that way. I wish we did that a little bit more often, though. I think a lot of times we get caught up 
in our own individualistic thought patterns, feelings, whatever have you, and maybe don't consider other people. And I think that could be very problematic. The example I think that facilitators set and hopefully that people take away from the workshops or the gym conversations or the family meetings is like, how am I naming what I I need, but also how am I able to see the humanity in other people and honor that as well and make space for that? Mm -hmm. I don't be wanting to do that either. You know, like (laughs) I really want to cuss people out and just be, you know, just react, right? Like you want to just have a reaction, but we're so trained not to mm-hmm. that I find it very difficult to mm-hmm. yeah, react in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Hard. So I think ultimately the conclusion that we have come to, <laughs> not necessarily a hard conclusion, <laughs> but word of the day boundaries, right? So naming what it is that you need and being able to say that to folks, in particular, those that are close to you, is one way that if you are in the facilitator capacity, teacher capacity, coach capacity, right? Being able to name what you need and say that and having those conversations with folks, maybe ahead of time, So maybe before the family meeting or before you have some wild conversation saying, hey, I need to be seen this way or I need to have this conversation in a loving manner or whatever it is. So that way the person understands what they're coming into it with. Anything that I missed for how we can kind of like shut off facilitator mode and just be people? Yeah, I feel like the boundaries piece, and this is something that is It's going to be a consistent thing for me because I think that in addition to boundaries, I don't think I was ready for the layer of grief that comes along with setting boundaries. And I think that I've had to just allow myself to feel my feels and not feel like I need to facilitate or be like, oh, this person didn't mean that because they don't have the tools and language because I can automatically go there. Right. Like, oh, my mom doesn't mean she's not meaning any harm or this person, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. like. I can set those boundaries, but when I do that, there is a feeling for me, not even thinking about the other person of like that connection feeling different, right? Not having the same connection that I had before or feeling really sad about the fact that our relationship isn't as deep as it could be. And so that's been challenging. And so I think one of the things I've been trying to practice is just sitting Mm-hmm. With the fact that it's not, boundaries isn't meant to be an easy thing, but also feeling okay about me being frustrated, which also means that I have to accept the frustration that comes on the other side of folks that I'm setting boundaries for because they don't know that, right? They're like, what is happening? You know what I mean? And it's hard for them. And it's like, nothing I can say or do will make someone understand. So how do I make peace? with not being understood. And that sometimes is is challenging for me. Yeah. When you're saying that, I was thinking about that when it comes to naming things, because when you put yourself out there and you put your feelings out there and your needs out there and people can't meet them, you have to grieve the air being sucked out of that room, right? Like you have to grieve that you're now looking at that person in a different way, but also what does it look like to hold grace and Fatima is one of my favorite people to talk to about this because I think she does this very well in a lot of ways. And I know it's something she still even struggles with, not to air all your things out, but. <laughs> hey, Kaya, tell the, tell the people. <laughs> Give them my social security number. Uh, <laughs> no, I did, I did. I oh, that I was okay. I should have asked. No, no it's totally um, fine. It's fine. But it's something I want to be better about myself because I think that's where my fear comes from when it is setting boundaries, like you said, Fatima, and when you name things and your needs aren't being met by the people you hope and care and love for and want them to be able to meet your needs, right? And they can't do that. So what now? Like, what do we do now? And then with that, a thing that came up for me a lot when we were first talking about this conversation was like, we're using words like naming and boundaries and I am on TikTok. I'm a TikTok girly. And we've been seeing, I've been seeing on TikTok a lot around like how people are using these words and frameworks and concepts to actually cause harm to people. So how are we also being mindful when we're doing these things 
around the impact of using them in a negative way, in a way that doesn't create space for dialogue, if we're just shutting people down in the sake of just shutting people down. So how are we opening that dialogue after we set that boundary with our family, our loved ones? What are we doing when we're naming something and someone isn't meeting that need? How are we continuing that conversation going if we have it in us, but also respecting ourselves enough to know when like enough is enough? That's kind of like where I see the next stage of this conversation going maybe in a few months or a year from now for all of us. Yeah. We can't have nothing nice. Like we find something to use and somebody always ruins it. It's like, why can't we just have nice things? And to go back to what you were talking about, Fatima, we talked about that in breaking barriers, right? Like, can you take boundaries too far? Yes. You can. Anything, I would argue, can be taken too far. We see people do it all the time. And so constantly being in an evaluative state, I think, I think that's being alive anyway, but just reevaluating, right? Like, am I really doing too much right now? Or no, I'm actually doing enough and other people are not able to receive that or they don't have the capacity or they don't have the skill set or whatever that is. And how are you working through that dynamic? I am not a fan of just like canceling people, right? Like we're people at the end of the day. And I really want us to humanize each other because ultimately like we're all we got. And if we just keep cutting folk off, then that's a very isolating place to be. There are circumstances where people do need to be cut off, but not everybody because they don't agree with you. That is a very problematic way to, I think, be in the world. Capacity just probably needs to be the word of the century because that what you said right there is where like folks don't always have the capacity. And so what Rachel said and then Kaya said, then what next? And, And what do you do with that? And that's the continuous work of relationships that there's always gonna be a question mark, a tension somewhere, somehow, whether it's in your body or in between or between you and the other person. But the thing that you mentioned on TikTok. I still haven't gotten on TikTok. Like, I'd be trying to get on TikTok, but then I'd just be like, this is kind of like Instagram. I hope nobody from TikTok or Instagram listens to this because... <laughs> I am I am an elder millennial, and so I... No. You know? <laughs> but no. there's so many great things on TikTok. Like, when I get on there, I'm like, wow, this restaurant, I want to go there. But I kind of need somebody to, like, send those things to me versus me looking at them. Okay, I'm getting sidetracked. Come on, facilitators. Put me back on track. (laughs) I was going to say what you said with the TikTok stuff. Like, I was saying this the other day on my Instagram post about like the pendulum and how when you're in your healing journey and whatever it is that you're healing from or with or whatever, however you want to term it, is like when there's a piece of you that realizes everything, right? It's like, Mm. oh my gosh, I've been doing all these things for people, or I haven't been hurt, or this wasn't a healthy relationship. If you feel like, oh, I've been too nice, for example, sometimes you want the pendulum to be somewhere in the middle, but what ends up happening is like you swing it all the way to the other end. And then you're like, nope, because I've been nice. And now I'm about to be up in everybody's face. And like, I do think sometimes people need to go there sometimes in their healing journey Mm. to then come somewhere that feels good to them. So I have seen people use therapy language that like the therapist is telling you to be like, hey, this is not healthy. You need to set boundaries. This is a toxic relationship. But the therapist never says like, and don't go tell the other people that like this is for your work. But I think people take that and like, yeah, exactly. Then they go to the person and be like, yeah, because you're toxic and you're dusty and you're raggedy. All right, maybe not a good idea. Yeah, yeah, the ad libs. (laughs) Fatima specific. (laughs) But it makes sense because you maybe never felt like you had a voice or you were second guessing yourself and you finally have someone validating you. And in a way, it feels like a relief. But that other person probably is not seeing it coming from anywhere because your relationship never existed in that way. But sometimes you can use you won't you won't even say raggedy or these other words. You might just say, hey, this is an unhealthy relationship. And that still is enough to trigger somebody else to be like unhealthy. Are you calling me unhealthy? So it's hard. I think therapists maybe could start giving people like talking points 
You mean and like you a, a cheat sheet? Seek, yes. The advice on TikTok too, right? Like you shouldn't go around. Like if Fatima, I asked Fatima to do something for me in a work capacity and she tells me I don't have the capacity for it. I can't then go back and say Fatima's toxic. <laughs> There's also that piece to it too of like, maybe you're getting a conversation in therapy about someone that is valid and in your truth. And there are also (laughs) aspects to the world that like Fatima has boundaries of her own and I can't call her toxic for setting her own boundaries. Mm. So like, like, what is that? That's a whole other topic for another podcast of like, what does that look like in practice? But yeah. Yeah. That's some deflecting and projection and all kinds of stuff that we don't have time for today. (laughs) 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 The facilitation voice. (laughs) And here we are. So I would like to thank both Fatima and Kaya for taking over the podcast with me and talking about what it means to be a facilitator on and off the clock. And as you have heard, we are all still kind of struggling with the same things that most people are because first and foremost, we're human beings, but we're in the work and we're committed to it. If you have any tips, tricks, or otherwise, you can slide into my DMs or my inbox and let me know, and I will be happy to attempt to put them into practice. Thanks, Rachel, for inviting us to hang with you. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel. Thank you, Fatima, for sharing as well. Thanks, Kaya, for putting my business out in these streets. No kidding. No kidding. No kidding. I kid. No, it was great. It was a great conversation. (laughs) Thanks so much. Bye, friends. Bye. All right. So hopefully you learned a lot from that and took away some tips and some thoughts on how to handle facilitation and what that's all about. Thank you so much for listening. And we have a couple of things we want to plug before you wrap up with our podcast today. So yeah. Rachel, do you want to kick us off? Or actually, no, sure. I'm going to kick us off first. Ooh, okay, great. Switch it over to you. Just keeping us on our toes. You know, Love that for us. Do. Love it for us. So first of all, we have a ton of webinars coming up. And so if you're interested in the DEI work that our team does and those lovely folks who you just spent a little bit of time listening to and hearing more from them, please check out our website. We have webinars every month. They are free. They are an hour long, very little commitment, but you're going to learn a lot. I guarantee that. So check that out. The next webinar that is coming up in June. Well, actually, sorry, we do have a May webinar that is on pronouns. So check that out. And then in June, I'm actually going to be delivering the webinar, which is all around anti-Asian sentiment and how to combat it. So check that out if you want to learn and hear more from me. Yay. And then the news that we've been sort of teasing over the past few months is that it is our 10th anniversary of our very first event back in June 2013. We Woo-hoo. held our very <laughs> wild 10 years, 10 years later. So we're having a big old anniversary party in Boston. So if you are in the Boston area, we encourage you to sign up, grab a spot. There are not a million spots, so definitely get your ticket when you can. It'll be held at Yvonne's in Boston, downtown Boston, and we are very excited because it's going to be in Felicia's special favorite area, the secret room in Yvonne's. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it is going to be the secret room, so highly recommend that you sign up because spots are limited and you won't want to miss it. (laughs) (laughs) And the food and drinks and company are all wonderful. And then finally, we are going to be having another round of Leading DEI Conversations, which is a public program that will be happening this summer. Registration will open, applications will open at the end of this month. So just stay tuned for that. Definitely sign up for our newsletter if you're not already on there. Yeah, so thank you all so much for listening. And please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, the work. Make sure to tune in for our next episode in two weeks. And if you're looking to further your own education and gain support alongside other incredible people, please join our free, fabulous community. You'll get a welcoming, built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and so much more. Check it out at risetogether.shegeeksout.com. All right, that's it. Bye. We did it. Bye. Bye.